This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon, good afternoon. Welcome to our discussion, The Power of the Parsha. And today we are learning about Parsha's Vayigash. And this is where the showdown between Yosef and his brothers comes to a culmination with Yosef outing himself as Yosef. Um, he's like, hey guys, I know you think I'm the viceroy of, of Egypt, but I identify myself as Yosef, your brother. And um, of course, there's an enormous amount of embarrassment. Then Yosef sends and gets, the, gets his father to come down. Um, he gets them, the beginning of them getting started, set, being set up in Egypt. And um, finally, they end up, of course, the story ends with... Um, they're settled in Egypt, and now the next blessed, next next week we'll read about uh, Yaakov's last year, last last few days in Egypt. Um, okay, so let's let's talk about a, a couple different things. We're going to cover a, a few different topics today. The first thing I want to talk about is as the Jewish people are going down. Uh, before 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 that, so Yosef wants his father to know that he's legit. Remember, his father's thought he's been dead for 22 years. So Yosef wants to make sure that his father knows it's me who sent uh, the brothers back. They're not coming back. I mean, theoretically, the brothers could have come back and sold their father a bill of goods and said, hey, dad, we know that you're reluctant to leave Israel, but your son is down there because that's where the food is. And then Yaakov would have come and they could have just been, look, dad, we're sorry, we lied to you, but it was for the greater good, right? We lied to you because we needed you to come down to Egypt because that's where the food is. And, um, and we needed you there, because, that's, again, that's, that's where you can live. So we lied for the greater good. They, they could have pulled that off, kind of like the same way the government was lying to us in the beginning of the pandemic and saying, masks don't work, because they didn't want you to go out and buy masks. They needed it for the, uh, for, the, for the nurses or the doctors, which I get it, but you kind of lose people's trust. It's kind of tricky to play once or twice in your life, and then people just don't trust you anymore. But the brothers could have done that, so... How does Yosef make sure that his father knows that it's really legitimately him, that he really is the one? So he's got to give some kind of information. You've got to give some kind of information that nobody else would know besides Yosef. So what does he do? He sends wagons, which in Hebrew are called agalos. Now the agalos, the wagons, those are a reminder to Jacob. And it's something that only him and Yosef know. And what is that? That is that Yosef and, and Yaakov were learning a specific topic called Egla Arufa, which has to do with a, a calf that's used as a sacrifice when you find a dead body in the middle of nowhere. And that was the last thing that Yosef and Yaakov were studying together before Yosef left to go check on his brothers. And of course, we know what ended up happening. He ended up getting you know, caught and sold and kidnapped and slavery and all that kind of jazz, which was not good per se, although it was kind of good in the end, because it was supposed to be that way. <laughs> so all is good in the end. In any case, so that is a little hint from Yosef to Yaakov, hey, this is legit. It's really me I'm sending for you. There's no way that anybody else could have known this. Now the problem is, there are ways that other people could know this. You have stories, and these stories happen from time to time, where somebody comes out of prison, for example, and they assume the identity of someone else who is in prison with them. You know, you, you're roommates with somebody in prison for a good couple of years. You get to talking and you cover all kinds of things, right? So maybe you know a lot about this person's family. Maybe you know his siblings' names and where they go to school and then what they're going to do for work and who they're married to. You can end up knowing an enormous amount of information and you can come out and pass yourself off as the real deal even though you're not the real deal. So there's actually a fascinating story that, um, that will kind of help you understand this. The Vilna Gon, in his day, there was a very, very wealthy family who lived in Vilna and married off their daughter to an individual. And of course, it was a massive wedding, big fanfare, all kinds of, you know, as you can imagine... And then right after the wedding, it turned out that the guy had significant, significant uh, disabilities, mental disabilities, and developmental disabilities. And somehow he was able to hide it really well, but he was, 
he was prone to hallucinations. He was prone to, you know, wild uh, rants, grandiose uh, projections, all, all kinds of things. And it was really, really uncomfortable for the family. And one day, this guy just decided he was going to go save the world or whatever it was, and he just sets out of town and leaves, leaving his wife behind. Now, the problem is she was still married to him, right? So she's now what's, what's called in Judaism an aguna. An aguna is a woman who can't remarry because her husband's dead. Or, no, sorry, not, not dead. Her husband's not dead. Her husband is assumed to be alive, and she can't remarry. And he, he was, again, he was someone who was... was you know, he wasn't. He wasn't. He was obviously someone who was able to carry enough conversations that he'd be able to get through to a marriage. And he married a, a woman from a very prominent family. But once you got down a little bit deeper, once you started peeling back the layers of the onion, there was some pretty funky stuff in there. So, and then he just sets off on a path, and he's going to go change the world, and he's going to go be a messiah or whatever he's going to be, whatever he thought he was going to be doing. And then he disappears, and years go by. Years and years and years go by. Finally, one day, this man shows up in town. And he says, I'm back. I'm back. I, 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 I was going through a tough period. I had some challenges. I had maybe a mental breakdown. I, uh, but, but I'm back, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking for my wife. And he comes knocking at the door. And if you can imagine, like 10 years have gone by, right? And it's just a little bit uncomfortable. Because it doesn't really look like that guy. But now he has a big beard, and he's... He's gained some weight, but people gain weight as they get older. And most, I mean, but the thing is, this guy knows everybody. He knows everybody in town. He knows their names. He knows what they do. And remember, this is a man, like, he doesn't look familiar to anybody, but he knows everything. He knows everybody. He's, he's got all the right things to do. But the wife herself, the wife herself was like, I don't, I don't think this is my husband. I don't feel comfortable. I don't think this is my husband. So what should we do? So the Vilna was consulted. And the Vilna said, he's like, here's what you should do. Friday night, let the father-in-law go to Shoal with this guy. And when they get to Shoal, let the father-in-law stop at the entrance to the Shoal and let him say, here, go ahead, go to your seat. And see if the man can find his seat. Okay, sure enough, Friday night, the, the guy who's now on his way to being accepted as the, uh, as the husband or whatever, they go to Shoal with the father-in-law. And the father-in-law stops at the entrance to the Shoal and he says, okay, go ahead, go to your seat. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, come, you go first, you go first. No, 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 please. He's like, no, 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 you go first. Go to your seat. The man didn't know where his seat was. And thus he was exposed as a fraud. Somehow, in all of his travels, wherever he was, he had bumped into this guy who told him, look, I used to be married to this really, really wealthy girl, and, you know, whatever, I left her, and he's like, oh yeah, tell me more about her, tell me about her family, tell me about her community, tell me about her neighbors, where does the house, what does the house look like, where did I, where did you live, where did you grow up, what was your family like, and this guy asked him and pumped him for as much information as possible, but said to Vilnagon, when you're a, a scammer, you're not going to think of a Dabar Shabakdusha, you're not going to think of holy things. So you're going to ask all about professions and jobs and the type of clothing he wears and where does he go shopping and everything possible, names, families, dates. The one thing you're not going to be thinking about at all is where do you daven and show? Because that's just not who you are when you're a fraud. When Yosef wanted to send a message to his father that I am really Yosef, he sent the message saying, I know the Torah that we learned together. That's the one thing. If there was some scam artist who had given over information and pumped me from information or whatever before he killed me or whatever it was, he wouldn't know the holy things. Which is actually fascinating because what that means is on a deep level, it's the holy things in you that really define most uniquely and deeply who you are. You know, you're, you're a football fan? Big deal. Many, many other people are. Hundreds of thousands of people. That's not what makes you unique. That's not what makes you special. That's not your place in the world. Okay? Wow. You're, you, go, you know, go blue. Or 
you know, go Spartans or whatever, whatever they say. Go Tigers. Let them go. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I go to a game, which is rare, I have to I have to call my friend High Saffron, who's on this call and he's picking up his Michigan uh, sticker over there. I'm like, what's the phrase for this team? Is it like let's go Tigers, or is it like go Blue? Or is it like I don't even know what the phrase is. Like I don't know what phrase to say in like different sports. Like I know for Michigan it's go Blue, but I, I don't even know what it is for Michigan State. Like is it let's go Spartans, or is it like Sparty? Or I, I don't know what. If anyone can put in the chat box, what is the phrase for Michigan State? I, I don't even know what the phrase is, right? That's where, that's where I, no, I got to mute you. <laughs> you could, you could, you could put it in the tag, in, in the, um, you could put it in the chat. Thank you for reminding me that I got to mute you all, but go green, go white. Okay, fine. Go green, go white. Yeah, it's like, I don't even like, I went to like, you know, I, I went to a game. I'm like, is it, let's go Lions or is it? Lions go Lions! Like I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I really, I have no idea. I have no idea. So like, I have to like check in with people. But when it comes, to, so but guess what? You know what? A billion other people in the world know the answer. If I ask any, if I go on this Zoom and I say, you know, what's the phrase for for, for University of Michigan? Everyone knows it's go blue. Everyone knows it's go blue. Whether you're a Michigan fan, you're not a Michigan fan, it's irrelevant. There's hundreds of thousands. There's millions of Michigan fans. In this area, literally millions. That's what not what makes you unique. What makes you unique is your own personal spiritual growth, spiritual battles, spiritual challenges. What you're learning, what you're focusing on, what you're trying to become. What areas of your life you're working on right now spiritually. If you want to give the real fingerprint, it's not about where you live, what street you live on, what house you live in, what color car you owned. Was your first car, you know, those are the kind of things, the identifying marks they ask you, like, when you want to get a website, they're like, here's a password question, what was your first car, right? You're like, a 1987 Honda Accord, that wasn't mine, I'm just saying, I don't want to give you the real one, because then you'll be able to crack into all my uh, bank accounts and stuff, and they'll be like, what was your real, what was your first car? You're like, I know, Rabbi Burnham's first car was a 1987 Honda Accord, it wasn't, it was a Honda Accord, not 1987, I think they only give you three tries, so whatever. You can get in if you can, but then they're going to lock you out eventually. So guess well, okay? (laughs) Anyway, anyway. So the bottom line is your unique identifying information that you really want to know that no one's going to know is your spiritual progress. Says Yosef, I want to send a message to my father that I'm still alive. I want to send a message to my father that it's really me. It's not some guy who interrogated me in a cell. If there was someone trying to get Yaakov down to Egypt and he had Yosef in a cell and he was waterboarding him, he would ask him all kinds of questions. Tell me about your brothers. Tell me about your sisters. Tell me about the tent you grew up in. What color was it? What kind of horse did you own? Did you have your own horse? Did it have a blaze of white on its brown back? Or, you know, whatever. like whatever. Like, it would ask all kinds of questions like that. The one question they wouldn't ask is, tell me what Torah you were learning with your father before you got split up. Because that's just not how criminals think. You want to know what is your unique identifier it's what your spiritual struggles are. Not the fact that you are a huge Michigan fan. Not the fact that you wear Ferragamo belt. Trust me, that doesn't make you unique in this world. There's a billion people in this world wearing either real or fake Ferragamo belts. That's not what's unique about you. Or that you wear Tory Burch flats. Or that you have a, you know, a, a coach bag. That's not what makes you unique in this world. What makes you unique in this world is your struggles is what you're currently up to. What did you leave off in? What are you learning? What sugya are you in? What parsha are you in? What is your personal battle right now? What are you fighting for in your own Yiddishkeit? What are you contending with? That's what makes you unique. And that's what Yosef sends to his father. I'm still the same Yosef. I'm still chazering over the sugya of of the Gemara that you taught me, the, the, not the Gemara, the, 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 the sugya that, that we were learning, the, the sugya of Egla Rufa. You know, there's an amazing story, and I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm fuzzy on the details right now, because I didn't think of saying the story over until like 12 seconds ago. But there was a story in the Holocaust where like, there was somebody who, had, who was in the Holocaust, he went through all the horrors, he was stuck in camps and all that, and finally he gets out, they said to him, like, what, do you, what can we get for you? And he says, a Gemara Baba Kama. And they brought him a Baba Kama, and he opens it up to page, whatever, let's say it's Nun Zion Amad Aleph, and he just continues learning where he left off. Could you, could you imagine what that is? What a human being. This is a man who's been through Auschwitz. This is a man who saw death marches. 
This is a man who saw his friends dying on the road, people with typhus, starvation, people going to the fence. This is a man who lived in a place where there was vermin running around eating people alive at night. This is a man who endured beatings and, and, and blows from, from rifles to the head. This is a man who hasn't had more than 200 calories a day for a year and a half. What's the first thing that he wants? What can we get for you? Not a pair of shoes. What does he want? Can you get me a Gemara Babakama? Can I, I want to pick up where I left off. Nun Zayin Amad That's where we were up to. That was the last year I was learning. Wow! That is a man who held on to his identity the whole time. When you know where you are and where you're holding, then you're going to get to where you're going. When you have no identity, when you have nothing holding you to who you are, then you, you, you never get there. So many people today, right now, are in America. Yeah, I don't know if you know this, but there was a, there was a report that came out recently from the uh, Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, I believe. Murtha, Murthy. Vivek, I think it's for... Yeah. Oh, Baba Kama, if, for those who are asking, is a tractate in the Talmud. Dr. Doctor, the, the, the Attorney General, go ahead, hi, just put him in the chat box, I'm not sure, Vivek Murtha, Murthy, whatever. Anyway, he, he just put out a, a huge report. The state of the mental health of America right now is not, not in a good place at all. Like, really, really not. Um, especially amongst, amongst teenagers, and it's understandable. They've been locked in their homes for years. But I believe on a deeper level, what's really going on is, we don't have a clear sense of direction in America. Like, what are you supposed to be doing? Anything that we've been telling people for the last hundreds of years that you're supposed to do. You're supposed to raise a family. You're supposed to have children. You're supposed to work hard. Those are all values that have been, like, basically beaten down. Families, the patriarchy, and it's old school, and all those... All, Vice Admiral Vivek Murthy, MD, who attended the Shiva Beth Yehuda dinner in, in October. Thank you very much. That is, yeah. So, I mean, we, we used to have a clear sense of purpose. And we don't have that sense of purpose right now. The, the fact that they were giving people money when they weren't working, okay, that's okay, obviously, for a short period of time. But not working is in itself often a mental health challenge. Meaning if you're older and you're retired and it's, at a point in your life where it's physically hard to work, I get it. But not working is a mental health challenge. Not having a purpose, not having a drive, not knowing what sugya you're holding in is a real challenge. And if you don't know what sugya you're holding in, then you open up your phone and any sugya that assaults you on whatever social media platform you're on becomes your sugya. That becomes the topic that you're living in. Yosef was still holding on to his sugya of Egla Harufa for those decades that he was away from his father. He knew where he was. He knew where he was holding. He didn't forget. Which brings us to the very next point. When, I, when Yaakov finally sees the Agalos and he understands that Yosef is still there, still struggling with spiritual struggles, he's still the same Yosef, he says, okay, I'm going to go down. And then comes one of the most important psukim. It says the following in Parshas Vayigash, Parak Mem Vav Pasuk Chafches, Genesis forty six twenty eight. Ves Yehuda Shalach Lefanav Al Yosef, and he sent Yehuda in front of him to Yosef Lahoros Lefanav to prepare for him Goshen, Goshna, and Goshen. Vayavo Arts Goshen, and they came to the land of Goshen. So what exactly did he send Yehuda to do? So it says, the Medrash tells us that what did he do? What was he sending him? He was sending in front of him Lahoros to set up a place of learning, a place of halachic ruling, which tells you two things. Number one, Yaakov was very keen on ensuring that his people would get out of Egypt. As Yaakov is going down into Egypt, his biggest concern is how do we get out of Egypt, which is why Hashem comes to him and says to him, don't worry, I'm going to go down with you, I will come out with you, I'll bring you back up out of this. Yaakov is really, really concerned about bringing his children down to Egypt, and for good reason. 
So what does he do? The very first thing he does, before he even gets to his location, before he gets to his destination, before he gets to the home he's about to settle into, he sends Yehuda in front of him to set up a yeshiva. To set up a base hurrah. And there's a couple of points I want to make about this. First of all, this is exactly in line with the first message. This is the message, do you know how we're going to get out of Egypt? If the entirety of the time that we are in Egypt, we have a yeshiva, we have a clear sense of purpose of where we're going, of what we're learning, of what sugya we're holding in, of what battles we're fighting, because the minute we don't recognize that, the minute we just allow ourselves to float free, then we'll just get caught up in whatever Egypt is today. Unfortunately, you see many American Jews who are not anchored to any sort of Torah, and what are they caught up in? They're caught up in whatever the American milieu is. And they get swept away in it. I don't want to name names, but you you don't have to think hard to think of Jews who are in America who are so, so lost in the things that they're championing are so far from what a Torah life should be, or what a Jew, or what's what a Jewish life should be. Because the minute you stop knowing what sugi you hold in, the minute your Jewish education stops, and unfortunately, from there's huge amounts of Jews today, millions of Jews who have no Jewish education, and even for those who get Jewish education, it usually ends at bar mitzvah or confirmation. But the minute the education stops, the minute the learning stops, the minute you stop making your identity from what you're learning, the minute your identity starts becoming everybody around you, and then your identity is go blue. And then your identity around you is, you know, whatever wind is pulling. You know, go, go Trump, anti-Trump, you know, whatever, it just be, that becomes, who cares? We're yidden. What we're here in this world to do is so much more important then pro-Trump, anti-Trump. We have a mission in this world. But the minute you let go, then you just get caught up. And before you know it, you have Jews. You know, I'll call out two examples of this. Which, again, I feel bad for them. They're so lost. They're so, so lost. These people never had a chance. Ben and Jerry. Two Jews. Wealthy, successful. Anti-Semitic. Because they got caught up in this culture of the people around them who are just saying that Israel is bad because they've always been saying that Israel and the Jews are bad. They've always been saying that for 2,000 years. But the minute you stop your own Jewish education, the minute you stop learning what it means to be a Jew, then you start learning what it means to be a non-Jew. And a non-Jew is to hate Jews. So you start as a Jew, hating your own people. Yaakov says, if you want to get out of Egypt, you know what you need to do? Your Jewish education never stops. Before we even settle into our home, there has to be a yeshiva here. There has to be a place of learning. Your learning can't stop at the end of Hebrew school. Your learning can't stop. What is a base hurrah? Base hurrah is high level learning. Hurrah means to like psak. Psak hurrah means when you give, when you, you today we have a, you, know, you have a base hurrah in a city. It means it's a house where they give over halachic rulings. Today, by the way, in Detroit, we have an incredible hotline, by the way, where if you need halachic answers answered, you, you call up this highline. You call up this, I'll give you the number right now, someone be prepared to record it. It's saved in my phone, the contact is saved in my phone as Rabbi Miller Halacha. His name is Rabbi Miller. He's a brilliant, brilliant young man who knows halacha in all areas. The number is 908 220-7739. You call him up, and he'll give you halacha. And his, again, I, I've called him multiple times. He's very accessible, and his knowledge is incredible. And what a bracha, though. That's high-level learning. To get to that level of learning, where you can just answer anything on any topic at any time, pretty much, you have to have a lot, a lot of Torah scholarship under your belt. That's not somebody who stops studying at Hebrew, after Hebrew school is over, or after confirmation. A base hora'ah. Right? A base hurrah is a place of learning, high-level learning. So that's step number one. 
Yaakov says the minute you don't know where you're coming from, the minute you don't know what you, what you are, the minute you stop learning, and learning Torah is what it means to be a Jew, the minute you stop that, the minute you start automatically becoming like the other. So that's the most important thing for us to have over there. But the second level, also I want to think about, and that is an idea. Hora is instruction, right? The, the, a base hora is a place where I get halakhic rulings, right? So that means it's not a place for me to talk about, you know, oh, I heard this is gematria of this, you know, it's, which is nice, it's beautiful, it's amazing. But it's about, it's about um, when I need to know what is the Jewish law. And I think that what ends up happening is is that we sometimes, when we start getting into a society where there is no sense of right or wrong, right? We live in an America right now in a postmodernist world, right? That one of the main ideas in postmodern philosophy is that there is no objective right or wrong. There is no objective truth or false. It's all as you experience it. It's your lived truth. So maybe you hire two people to beat you up, or just a little bit beat you up, and throw bleach on you and put a noose on you in the middle of a freezing cold night in Chicago, and, uh, and then you, you went out and you claimed that these white Trump supporters with MAGA hats were beating you up and screaming, this is MAGA country, and you turned our whole country into an upside-down experience because you wanted whatever, you wanted attention, you wanted a better contract, so you went on and you lied to everybody. You hired, interestingly enough, two African-American men to beat you up and stage this race attack. And you caused the whole country to be up in arms. People are saying this is a modern-day lynching. You know, People like all over the country were, were hurt and fighting and arguing about it. And you were lying the whole time. But you can just say, well, that's how I experienced it. It's our lived experience. It's, it's my lived experience. That's what the postmodernist world is. There, there is no right or wrong. There is no reality. You know, I, I, I identify as a pickle. You know, whatever it is. Like, I, I, you know, there's no, there's no reality. Whatever you feel reality is. To me, I experienced it as two white people beating me up and throwing a noose over my head. That was my lived experience. And the most important thing is to talk really about racism. No, there's a reality over here. You lied. In case anyone has no idea what I'm talking about, right now there's a massive court case about an actor who sent this whole country into a whole fit when he literally faked a race attack on him. He hired people to attack him and make it look like it was a racist attack. And here he was smearing white people all over America for attacking him. And it was literally him who was an African-American actor who hired two African-American brothers to, to, to do it. It's crazy. But that's his lived experience. And he's not backing down from it. That's, that's kind of changing. It's weird. It's a crazy world we live in. What's the question? The guy's 100% guilty. All right, let, let the courts figure it out. But anyway, that's a postmodernist world where your, your, your experience is what counts. Whatever you see, however you see the world. You know what the opposite of that is? The opposite of a postmodernist world is a base hurrah. Is a place where you say, here's the facts. I'm going to have somebody wiser than me tell me what's right and what's wrong. And he's going to tell me that my kitchen fork is fleshig or milchig or treif or whatever it is. And I'm going to follow that because it's not about... To me, this fork really feels parev still. Yeah, I know I put it first in a boiling hot you know, tray, a pot of chili... And then I didn't realize that. And the next morning I was stirring my boiling hot, you know, uh, cream of wheat with milk in it. But to me, you know, what does parav really represent? It represents things that are like in the middle. And I really, I love the middle. This is going to be like a parav spoon for me, okay? No. Beis Horah is where you get law. Ruvain owes Shimon $1,000. This spoon is treif. This piece of meat is not kosher. If you want to be able to get out of our gullus, right? Yaakov is saying we need a place that's just going to be very, very clear on truth. Because the exile is going to try to make truth become a malleable reality. So if you want reality to be reality, you need to base hurrah. 
You need a house that's going to tell you halacha. And you're going to follow that. And that's how you're going to get out. When you live with reality being reality, you don't let other people distort your reality and change it into anything you want it to be. And that's how you're going to get out of this exile. So that is idea number two, which is really connected to idea number one. Again, idea number one is Yosef's telling Yaakov, do you want to know who I am? Somebody may have gotten a lot of information out of me by waterboarding me, but here's what they'll never know, that I'm still learning the sugya of Egla Arufa, because that was the last sugya that we were learning. And when you know where you're, where you're holding, when you know what you're learning, you know who you are. And that's why, Yo- ya- Yo- that's why Yaakov ensured that there would be a study hall opened up in Egypt. So that both, A, we would always be learning Torah, because the minute you stop your learning of Torah, the minute your identity as a Jew, God and the Jewish people and the Torah are all connected. We are all one. And when you drop one leg of the three-legged stool, the other two start to fall away too. When you drop the Torah, God and the Jewish people start to fall away too. And on top of that, it was not just any place of learning Torah, but specifically a base hora, which is where actual law is, is handed down, because you cannot have success in a postmodernist society where anybody's reality can be reality. Because when anybody's reality is reality, no reality is reality. Right? When anybody's reality is reality, then nobody's reality is reality. Okay. That is idea number two. Idea number three. We know that when Joseph came down, he set his brothers up to be shepherds. And he said that the Egyptians, he, he said the language of the Pasuk is, The men were shepherds of sheep. Because they were men of, of, they owned a lot of sheep. And they brought all their sheep with them. Now if you notice, a lot of Jewish greats are shepherds. Who else was a shepherd? You can put them in the chat box as fast as you can get them. But who else was a shepherd besides the brothers, the, the, 12, the, 12, the, the, the 11 tribes, the brothers of Joseph, who were coming down to Egypt? Okay. I'm going to do the easy one first. Because I don't see... Okay, David. Very good. King David was a shepherd. Excellent. Who else? Come on, guys. Jacob, very good. Who else was a shepherd? Moshe, good. Who else was a shepherd? Come on, type fast. You're like, wait, I don't really know any more shepherds. Tzipporah, uh, uh, that is true. <laughs> Moses' wife, Tzipporah, was a shepherd as, along with her siblings because their father didn't have enough money to hire man shepherds. Very good. Okay. So we've got, who else were shepherds though? Avram, Avram had shepherds. Avram wasn't a shepherd. Okay. Who else was, meaning Avram had shepherds. He didn't, he didn't allow his shepherds to graze with, with loads shepherds. But it doesn't say he was a shepherd himself, as, as best as I know. Who else was a shepherd? King Saul, the first king of the Jewish people, was a shepherd. Shmuel was a shepherd. Okay. Uh, there were, uh, Rachel was a shepherdess. Very good. Rachel, the wife of... Uh, uh, of uh, Rachel and Leah were both shepherds. Okay, very good. So we've got a lot of shepherds. Why so many shepherds? Now, it happens to be with Zipporah and, uh, and Rachel, the reason why they may have been shepherds was because their fathers did not have the money to hire uh, male shepherds, which would have been more traditional in those days, or because the male shepherds wouldn't work for their family, in the case of Yisro, because he was seen to be a traitor to their religion. However, what is this idea of being a shepherd? So, the Rabbeinu Bachaya speaks about this. Rabbeinu Bachya Ibn Pekuda, from the 1100s. Um, what he says is like this. There's a, there's a couple ideas here. Now, idea number one is, it's very interesting, he actually brings this. It's a good way to make a living, right? You, you have sheep. Most of the time, they're eating, Okay? They're eating most of the time. What do shepherds do? All they do is they bring their flock to places that have grass. 
and then the sheep do the rest of the work. They eat the grass and they get fat and they get milk and they get wool. And you know what I'm saying? Which, by the way, the 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 the, uh, the Chovos talks about this. What look at a sheep? What an incredible miracle! What does a sheep eat? It eats grass and it goes from place to place and it grazes. What does a sheep produce? Wool, milk, meat. What part of the grass makes the wool? Think about it. They're eating grass. Which, by the way, has barely any nutrition. They're eating grass. And yet they're growing pounds and pounds of beautiful fabric that can be used to keep us warm in the winter. How did that happen? You know, I have a passion for understanding... (laughs) I guess everything. But um, I love understanding science. I'm fascinated by science. But I'm also fascinated by human ingenuity. I love watching how factories work. A friend of mine who was a chavrusa of mine in the summer, a chassidish young man, his family owns a large chocolate factory in, in New York. It's like buildings and buildings and buildings. Now here's the amazing thing. This guy, he's chassidish. He doesn't eat chal stam. He doesn't eat you know, things that are not chal v'yisrael. So he's been working in a factory, in a chocolate factory. His parents have been working in a chocolate factory their whole lives, basically. He's never, ever tasted his own chocolate. Isn't that amazing? It's not Chalv Yisrael. Right? Can you imagine? You're working in a chocolate factory your whole life, and you never taste your own chocolate. But he gave me a tour of his chocolate factory. Wow, I could spend hours in there, just watching the intricacies of how everything's put together. It's incredible. Recently, I just watched how they make <laughs> the most random thing. TV dinners, tilapia with a cream of broccoli sauce. I don't really care what they're making. To me, it's fascinating the human ingenuity of how they make it. It's, it's incredible. Niflo sabore. Now, when I say niflo sabore, niflo sabore means the wonders of God. Now, you're going to say to me, wait a second, that's the wonders of mankind. But no, 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 no. The Chovos Halavavos very clearly states and the Chobos HaVavos is duties of our, of our minds, duties of our hearts. The Chobos HaVavos clearly states that when you see the ingenuity of mankind, you have to be thankful to God for that too, because God gave us the faculties and even implants different ideas in our minds at various times throughout history. So like, when a light bulb will go off in the head of uh, Mr. Thomas Edison to try hairs for a filament or whatever, he tried 2,000 different things before he found the proper filament for a light bulb. But who gave him that idea that there could be this thing called a light bulb? And by the way, some of the biggest inventions were made by mistake. Rubber. Rubber was invented by mistake, right? A person who was working in a factory, I forgot what happened, or it was galvanized rubber was, was made by mistake. He, he was working with rubber, which was very brittle and very, it, could, it would freeze in the winter and it would melt in the summer. And then, I don't know, he was like, I forgot the full story. You read the story, you look it up if you want. It's like he was just, he left his rubber somewhere and then it got mixed with something else. You know, chocolate chip cookies were invented by mistake. Did you know that? Toll House, right? Vulcanized rubber, very good. They don't make power of chocolate in his factory. Vulcanized rubber was made by mistake. And vulcanized rubber is all the rubber that we use. Regular rubber today is unusable. Again, it freezes in the cold and it gets brittle and it breaks. And in the heat, it just starts melting. So vulcanized rubber is like real, real rubber, like the rubber tires we have on our cars. And that was all figured out by some guy by mistake. Do you know how the chocolate chip cookie came into being? So there's a Toll House, which is a company that um, makes you know, chocolate chips today. It's owned by Nestle. Toll House was actually a, like a bed and breakfast, a very famous bed and breakfast run by a woman. And one day she had a bunch of chocolate that was cut up and it was on a counter and somehow it slipped into a big cauldron of cookie dough. And they're like, oh no, what are we going to do now? All this chocolate got stuck in the cookie dough. She's like, you know what, just bake it and we'll serve it. We'll see what happens. That's how chocolate chip cookies. Could you imagine a world without chocolate chip cookies? Right? So here we go. Charles Goodyear spilled sulfur by mistake onto a rubber bat. So much of human inventions and innovations actually are like literally God. The way we found penicillin is amazing. I wrote a full Shabbos email about it. I'm not going to go into it again. But the way we have penicillin right now, antibiotics, is an incredible, incredible miracle it all went down. Hashem literally sent a woman carrying a cantaloupe with all the mold they needed to grow the penicillin that they have in great quantities today into the lab where they were looking for mold for, for
for penicillin. It was a crazy story. Anyway, so Hashem gives us the minds to think of creating things like computers and Zoom, so you could be on this class, or you could listen to this on your, your headphones. Hashem gave mankind the brilliance to create headphones. All these things, these are all the innovations of Hashem. Okay, now I'm working my way back over here. If anybody could steer me back to where I left off, this is the one ADHD. Let's go back onto the highway. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Chocolate company making. Oh yeah. <laughs> wow! I got it. I'm going back now. There we go. Back to the chocolate factory. Back to my fascination with all these things. So yes, I was again. I literally was watching how they make in a factory TV dinners. That's amazing. You know what's even more amazing than how they make. Fish with cream of broccoli sauce for TV dinners in a factory. What's even more amazing is that a sheep eats grass and makes wool. Let me get in on the inside of that and see how that happens. How a sheep eats grass and makes milk. How a cow eats nothing but grass but can grow to 2,000 pounds. Eating something that's so... I mean, obviously in America, we send them to a feedlot where they fatten them up with corn and other more intense calorie-rich things. But a cow, that's because they want to get them adult faster. They want to get them fat faster. So they, go to, they send them to finishing school where they fatten them up with all kinds of heavier grains and stuff like that before they kill them. But a cow can grow 2,000 pounds eating grass. Human mommies make milk to feed their babies. And do you know... How many different substances are in mother's milk? Do you know that in the mother's milk, here's something that's going to blow your mind away. I'm telling you, like, seriously, just sit down. Okay, if you're standing up right now, sit down. Because when you hear this, you're going to be like, no. No, it's impossible. No, Allah Akbar, God is great. Okay, here we go. Do you know that the mother in her, in her milk gives, puts, in, in, in mother's milk are found sugars, that are entirely indigestible by the baby. So you're thinking, hmm, that must be a real waste. Why in the world would a woman er, waste calories creating sugars for a baby that the baby can't digest? And the answer is because it's not made for the baby to digest. It's made for the bacteria in the baby's stomach. Because we have inside of us a massive biome. There are, more anti, there are more bacteria inside of you than there are cells of you. right? Meaning there are more bacterial cells inside of your alimentary canal, which goes from your nose all the way to the end. There are more bacteria inside of that donut hole, than the, which is not even officially sort of part of your body. Think about that, right? Your body is like a donut. It's just a really big donut, and the hole goes like this and twists around and all that. But the bottom line is, you are shaped like a donut. And inside of that donut, you absorb all the food that goes through you, or all the important food that goes through you, let the garbage out. But you've got bacteria that are incredibly crucial to your health. And the mother wants to start you off with a healthy bacterial biome inside of you. So the mother is feeding the baby, but the mother is also feeding the bacteria in the baby's gut with specific sugars that you can't absorb, but the bacteria need to thrive. Boom! Is the Lord not great? Okay. Back to sheep. Back to sheep. Back to sheep. So, the sheep do most of the work. And that's one of the reasons why all of our, so many of the great forefathers were shepherds. The sheep give you a lot of time to contemplate and think. And they give you a lot of time just to really spend your time in meditation. Now, I got to tell you, I don't know how many of you have meditated. I don't know how many of you have spent a half an hour, and if you haven't, at least try it once, just to introduce you to yourself. Go find yourself a beautiful place to sit with a nice vista, overlooking a pond, overlooking an ocean, looking at a a forest. You could do it in your basement, looking at a wall too, but it's a little bit nicer if you've got a beautiful view in front of you. Don't go with the phone. Don't go with an agenda. Just go there to meditate. I I promise you that if you actually do that, and you focus on just trying to hear yourself, you will get to know yourself a little bit better. It's an amazing experience. 
And it's usually a very powerfully spiritual experience, which is exactly why, by the way, the Yetzirah does everything in its power to make sure that we don't have any peace and quiet. All day long, we got songs and radio and podcasts and, and talk show hosts and, and political talk and sports talk and music and internet and da-da-da-da-da. He never wants you to do that. He never wants you to get to know you because guess what? You are a pretty good person. You are actually an amazing person if you just get to know you pretty well. So try doing that. That's what a lot of the four, our forefathers wanted to do. The sheep, they give you a good parnasa and they do all the work. All you got to do is you got to bring them to the pasture and then at night you bring them to a watering hole or whatever it is. And then the rest of the day you're just sitting there and chilling. Obviously you got to make sure that no wolves are going to attack your sheep. And you got to make sure that the, the sheep doesn't run away. But generally they don't. Like You've got a day to spend your time. You could sing songs to God like King David. You could think thoughts of Torah like Yaakov, who was the man of the, the, the Amud of Torah in the world. But even more than that, says the Rabbeinu Bechaya, when we're around people, the more people clump together, the more danger there is. Which, by the way, think about social media. Social media is the most the largest scale clumping together of people in the history of mankind. Which is why it's so extraordinarily toxic. Again, if you don't believe me that it's toxic, read Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy's report on the mental health of people today. Especially young people whose minds are so impressionable. But we've known this for years. For years and years and years we've known this. That large amounts of social media usage is dangerous to your mental health. We knew this when it was just Facebook, before we had Instagram and Snapchat and all the other, you know, TikTok and all the other crazies. We knew that having incredible exposure, a lot of exposure, which young people, especially during the pandemic, that's, that's what they were doing. They were stuck in their rooms. So all day long, they were just connecting, but you're connecting with very large clumps of humans. And often the loudest voices are not the kindest voices. Often the loudest voices are the most angry, the most vile, the most vicious, the most attacking, the most bullying. So it's amazing that Rabbeinu B'chayah, who lived 900 years ago, is talking about how when you have too many people together, it just it creates crisis. <laughs> it's so interesting. And he says like this, he says, the more a person can remove themselves from being around people a lot, the more he saves himself from Averos. And the more he... he, Let's take a modern-day equivalent of this. Based on this, what what are great jobs for one to have? I want to see if you could think about this. In the olden days, it was being a shepherd. So today, I mean, okay, you could say be a cowboy out in the West, but then you don't have Jewish infrastructure. You don't have... If you want to live in a Jewish community today, what kind of jobs would be really good jobs where you'd have plenty of time for contemplation, plenty of time by yourself, alone... Can anybody tell me? Anyone want to think about this? Librarian? Mm, could be. Okay, pilot. Pilot says Paul Burnswag the pilot. That's hilarious. I guess you have plenty of time to yourself then, yeah. Although you probably have your annoying co-pilot there most of the time. Um, but think about jobs like an electrician. Think about jobs like a truck driver. Think about jobs like a, a, well, a plumber, you can't think thoughts of Torah because you're around like smelly, smelly stuff, but like a roofer, a carpenter, so many of the blue-collar jobs, right? So many blue-collar jobs where you really, and, and, and of course, you could just play music really loud and then just ignore and just listen to the music or play talk radio or sports radio, or you could just turn it off sometimes and just listen to your thoughts. And you're by yourself. You're not talking to people all day, blabber, 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 blabber. Rabbeinu B'chaya is saying, it's, it's an amazing idea. It's like saying just, just the, the actual clumping together. You know, I was, I was recently uh, interviewed for a podcast, and they were, we were talking about sort of the differences between in-town you know, Judaism and out-of-town Judaism, right? So like Detroit is considered out-of-town. We, we're a very, you know, we're, we're a sizable Jewish community, Baruch Hashem. We have... You know, a lot of infrastructure, but we're definitely not like Lakewood or New York or Muncie or whatever it is. We're, we're talking about some of the challenges. And I believe it, it, it was amazing to see the source today. And the Rabbeinu Bukhaya basically saying, when you just have lots of people together, 
it automatically creates more gossip, more competition, more jealousy, more challenge. So all these greats were like, I'm going to take a job where I can't be in town. I'm not going to be talking to people all day. I'll be out in the fields. By definition, a shepherd is not around people a lot. And those were the jobs they chose for themselves because they understood that was going to give them the spiritual success that they needed. So that is um, another idea from the Rabbeinu Bechaya. And of course, uh, yeah. So I think one thing we could think about, and by the way, today, it's amazing. I don't know if you know this, but like electricians are making more than lawyers today. Again, there are lawyers who are very, very successful and making more, but there are, there are plenty of lawyers who are, I know plenty of lawyers who are making less money than electricians that I know. You know, a, a friend of mine's a plumber and he tells over the following joke. When he, when, he, when, he, when he gives you the quote sometimes and the quote's like an outrageous amount of, number, of money, he says, I know, I know, let me tell you a joke. He says, there's a, a plumber who gets a call. It's a holiday weekend, whatever. So it's like an extra charge for the holiday, extra charge for the weekend. And it's a lawyer's house. And, you know, he, he, he comes out and he's there for 15 minutes and he fixes the guy's problem. And he writes up the bill to the guy, and he says, here you go, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Smith, here you go. And the guy looks at the bill, he says, excuse me? What's the problem? $400? He's like, well, you know, there's a service charge, and then there was a weekend, and there's also a holiday. And then I bill by this amount for the hour. He says, well, <laughs> dude, I don't understand. You were here for 15 minutes. You're giving me a bill for $400, Right? If you do the math, that's $1,600 per billable hour. I'm a lawyer. I don't even make a third of that. I don't make a, ha- a quarter of that. And the guy says, I know, I know. He's like, what do you mean you know? You don't know. He's like, no, I, I do know. He's like, how do you know? He's like, I also used to be a lawyer one day. I also used to be a lawyer one day. So the bottom line is, there's a lot of opportunity and blue-collar feels, to have a job where you see the, the products of what you're doing, you see what you're building, you get the pleasure of, if you're a roofer, you know, the joy of seeing. You come, you go on the roof, you rip down the old tile, you put up the new, you fix some of the wood, you lay down the, the weather stripping, you put down two more layers of new, new you know, roofing, and, and you look back up at the end of the day, and you're like, wow, I just gave a family a roof for the next 30 years. There's something beautiful about that. And... There's something spiritual about that. If you spend that time with the music off, you can't do it the whole day. Obviously, you need your music, you need your radio, whatever it is. I get it. But there's a real power to being a modern-day shepherd. And those are the professions where you're not busy talking to people all day long and gossip and, yeah, I know, and maybe not being 100% honest or transparent or whatever it is. This is, this is, it's cool. We should bring back the appreciation for the trades in our communities. Anyway, my friends, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And I want to wish you a wonderful week. Have a good Shabbos. And uh, thank you for coming and listening. And most importantly, thank you for being awesome. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.